Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 25th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The world came together for a mammoth day of summits in Brussels yesterday. European leaders met at the European Council summit. The G7 leaders met at a second summit and a third summit saw the leaders of the 30 countries that make up the membership of NATO meet. There was one topic, war, and the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Four new NATO battle groups will move into bordering countries. Ukraine will be supported by military and humanitarian assistance, but while there will be no direct military involvement, sanctions will continue. The most significant sanctions, economic sanction regime ever, in order to cripple Putin's economy and punish him for his actions. The US President Joe Biden says the world needs to unite against Russia. The single most important thing is for us to stay unified and the world continue to focus on what a brute this guy is and all the innocent people's lives are being lost and ruined. What's going on? That's the important thing. But look, if you're Putin and you think that, the, that Europe is going to crack in a month or six weeks or two months, why not? They can take anything for another month, but we have to demonstrate. The reason I asked for the meeting, we have to stay fully, totally, thoroughly united. But are sanctions against Russia enough to stop this war? Let's get something straight. You remember, if you covered me from the very beginning, I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. The maintenance of sanctions, the maintenance of sanctions, the increasing the pain and the demonstration why I asked for this NATO meeting today is to be sure that after a month we will sustain what we're doing, not just next month, the following month, but for the remainder of this entire year. That's what will stop it. That's the approach as it stands. As it stands, Russia is bombarding Ukraine with bombs and tanks and planes. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would, re- it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross 
we'd make that decision at the time. The American President Joe Biden speaking uh, to reporters at a, a press conference yesterday. The Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, is on the line. Good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. What's your sense of things in Brussels? Is there unity? Look, undoubtedly there's unity, um, and I think that's the most important thing, whether it's in, in any of those organisations that you mentioned, there's absolute unity. Uh, there's unity to enforce the sanctions that's there already, uh, to work with other countries who aren't within these organisations where maybe there's loopholes of sanctions. We've got to start working there to make sure that you know they can't be used as a back door. Uh, but also I think the big thing really from yesterday, from what Joe Biden has announced, is in terms of energy dependence from Russia. So we don't have sanctions on gas or oil, but what we're really working towards doing now is to really very, very quickly reduce our dependence on Russia as a European Union uh, for gas and indeed for oil. And we saw a big announcement from Joe Biden yesterday where America now is going to provide a huge amount of gas uh, into the European market from its reserves. And I think that's going to have a big knock-on effect, I hope, on price, uh, but also on making sure that we're not paying significant money uh, into Russia every day, as Europe is doing, quite frankly, at the moment, because we need natural gas to heat homes and to produce electricity. And uh, another significant strand to that, uh, Europe has said it will not pay in rubles. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, that, that was, I suppose, a ploy by, by Putin to, to try to bring the, the ruble up as such, like to, to try and increase the value and to, to try and sort of get over the sanctions, I suppose, as well. But I suppose oil is priced generally in dollars. Uh, or euros, uh, depending on the market. So so that's not going to happen. If that were to happen, I think, first of all, I think some of the countries have said it would be a breach of contract, but it would significantly strengthen the Russian ruble, uh, and we can't let that happen. But the most important thing to do is just to reduce that dependence, and whether that's, in the meantime, get other supplies of natural gas. Now, in Ireland, we don't directly get our gas from Russia, but obviously we're part of the world market. Um, but countries are really scouring all over the place trying to find gas. So this, this announcement from America, I think, is really, really important. They're going to release a huge amount of energy. But I, mean, I was talking to colleagues in, in, in other countries, and they're going around Asia, they're going around Africa, trying to get gas uh, into the markets there. And that, that is working to some extent uh, to reduce that dependence on Russia. Okay. The world uh, united against Russia and its allies. But uh, at the same time, Minister... Um the West uh, is unable to agree to what Ukraine is asking of it? Well, there's things that can't be done. I mean, there's things that are being asked in no-fly zones that wouldn't involve Ireland, for example. That was last week, and there were reasons given for that. Ireland, for example, is a militarily neutral country. We can't give lethal weaponry. So there's things different countries can't do. But I think overall, I think nobody really has seen a response to an invasion like this in, in, in many decades. First of all, because we know how dangerous it is. Uh, secondly, because we know it's the right thing to do. So, uh, yeah, you're, not going to, you're never going to do everything that's asked for, but I think I have to, it has to be said, what is happening now at the moment is far beyond, far beyond what anybody predicted, I think, before Christmas. And certainly the war is beyond, I think, what people predicted before Christmas, but the response to it certainly is way beyond what people would have imagined. Okay. Well, uh, Ireland is supporting uh, Ukraine's hope uh, for an early entry into the European Union, I think. Oh, we absolutely, yeah. Um, and the teaching has given that commitment personally to President Zelensky, and we've said that publicly on a number of occasions. So, so look, that's, that's a, a process that will happen. Not everybody's on the same line as we are on that. Um, but the most important thing that you do there is you give the signal to Ukraine that, you know, you have a European path. You are part of the European family. We are here to help. 
We're going to help at the moment, but we're also planning for the future in Ukraine as well to rebuild the country. That's under discussion as well in Brussels. Um, and that that they need that message of hope, because what they don't need is a message of disappointment. Uh, that no, you can't join the European Union or ifs or buts or whatever. Um, so I think I think I think that's that's really about a message of hope and a message of how can we practically help you uh, when this war is over. Okay, President Zelensky said uh, that uh, the consequences of a, a NATO decision not to supply uh, them uh, with uh, the means to protect themselves from Russian bombs has resulted in the deaths of thousands of people. Is he correct? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, Ireland's not a member of NATO, so we're not involved mm. in any decisions like that. We're not subject to any requests like that. Um, it, I think the, the, the countries in NATO have to make those decisions for themselves. There's clearly a balance because clearly there's huge atrocities going on in Ukraine and people need to be held accountable for them and they need to be stopped and we're, we're trying to do that as best we can. But at the same time, you don't want the thing to spread beyond Ukraine to other countries and, and make it even worse. So I think from what I can see, looking from the outside in, uh, that's the difficulty, I think, that it presents to, to countries involved in the NATO alliance. Mm. In his speech to NATO, uh, Zelensky said Poland is next. It, it possibly is, but if that were to happen, it's really, it is unthinkable because that would, that would precipitate a major, major conflict right across Europe. He said uh, Russia is using phosphorus bombs. Yes, what, what's happening at the moment in, in Ukraine by Russia is a gross breach of international law and those who are doing it will be brought before the International Criminal Court. I have no doubt about that. Absolutely no doubt about that. But the balance that I, I assume people in NATO, which, as I said, doesn't involve us, mm. have, to, have to conclude is, do you make it even worse? And that's, I don't envy them having to make those decisions or making those calls. They're very, very difficult calls. Mm. How are phosphorus bombs defined, or, or, or do you know that, Minister? I mean, I, I don't. No, um, because I mean, this is all new to this is all new to, to most of us, and yeah. in Ireland we don't have that type of military experience. Um, so this is this is frighteningly new. That's the reality of it. Mm. Yeah, but they would be seen as chemical weapons. I, I think I'm not sure, like you, uh, but there is this fear that the Russians will use chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, uh, and uh, we heard. Joe Biden, uh, indeed, as we heard Jens Stoltenberg, uh, the Secretary General of uh, NATO, suggest that there would be consequences for Russia uh, taking such a, an approach. Um, this is getting very, very serious, especially when you hear uh, Russian pundits on television talking about nuclear strikes uh, and, indeed, a Kremlin spokesperson uh, not denying that Russia has the right or is not contemplating using nuclear weapons against Ukraine to CNN. Well... Yeah, we've heard all that sabre-rattling, and I certainly don't want to get involved in up in the ante on that. But what we do know is that all countries who have nuclear weapons, particularly Russia and America, have previously agreed that nuclear war is so bad that it can never be fought, but also it can never be won. Um, and I think back of a local TD, Frank Aiken, um, in this area in the 50s and 60s, and all the work he did towards nuclear non-proliferation to eliminate nuclear weapons, I think that's work that needs to be redoubled now, and certainly Ireland will take a lead on that, as we have always done in the past. Uh, it, the situation is so dangerous, so delicate, uh, and quite frankly, it's not, it's, it's, it's not imaginable to us. But it's also not imaginable to Russia, uh, because if they were to use nuclear weapons, uh, even if nobody were to fight back with nuclear weapons, uh, it would cause tremendous damage within Russia. Um, so I think we have to look at some of this saber-rattling uh, for what it is, uh, but at the same time be prepared to 
I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing will go further if that happens. There's no question about that. But I, I'd be very reluctant to speculate as to what, what would happen. Right, and these new battle groups, this build-up of troops and to the weapons of war in Hungary, Slovakia, Romania and Bulgaria, is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a, it's a matter for them. So that's that's a NATO thing. So Ireland's mm. not involved in that. Um, but I think these countries um, on Russia's eastern flank are extremely nervous. And I, I talked to many of them because they're all European Union colleagues and they're extremely nervous uh, as to what intentions Russia may have and they're absolutely entitled uh, to defend their own countries and they choose to do that uh, by being part of NATO, having that common defence and that's why they're part of NATO. It's, it's simply to protect their own land uh, and to get that extra support. So so that's happening. That's a matter for themselves and I fully respect their right to do that mm. uh, as independent countries and, and they've overwhelming support from their public uh, to do this. But they're not, they're not there to create war. They're simply there to defend uh, their own countries and to send signals that if anyone were to try anything on them, uh, that they have defence there. Okay, but the other side of this, of course, is that we're not isolated from this. Uh, we may not be members of NATO. We may be a neutral country, and that's uh, very debatable, uh, it would seem, at the moment. Uh, but if there is a, a nuclear strike, uh, undoubtedly the whole world will feel it. There's no question about that, and that's why we've got to redouble our efforts for peace. We've got to redouble our efforts to, to stop this, to enforce those sanctions to the absolute limit, to continue to squeeze not just the Russian government but the people of Russia because at the end of the day no matter what your country is it's the people that keeps the government in power Um, and we've got to keep squeezing them and that's I think what the European Union is going to continue to do Um, it's it's not going right for Russia at the moment that unfortunately creates a dangerous situation Um, and we are there to support Ukraine we're involved in the provision of non-lethal equipment we're involved in huge humanitarian efforts um, but those countries that are part of NATO have to make decisions for themselves, and these are these are big decisions that do require very calm people uh, to be making them. And quite frankly, on the Western side, I can see a lot of very very calm people, and I'm, I'm glad that they, we have some of the leaders and some of the other countries uh, in charge. Because the truth is, as you said, although we're not part of NATO and we're not part of a military alliance, we're prevented by the constitution from being so. Um, we are we would absolutely be affected. Uh, and there, there's absolutely no question about that. So I think we can be glad that there are cool heads there because it mm. does require cool heads. Uh, when I spoke to you about a, a week ago, if I remember correctly, Minister, uh, you didn't see any prospect of China taking sides or siding with Russia more to the point. I think that probably has changed at this stage. And there's a, a, a lot of talk and a lot of condemnation and a lot of finger pointing at China and Belarus, for that matter. Uh, and the Taoiseach... Uh, talking pretty explicitly yesterday uh, about the position that India is taking in this war. Yeah, well, I think what's happening there is that, well, first of all, there's only been, I think, four countries that have actually sided with Russia. That's Belarus, Syria, Eritrea, and North Korea. So, like, the worst of the worst. Um, they've, they've taken sides with Russia. There's a lot of other countries, or a certain amount of other countries, have stayed neutral, completely neutral, even on humanitarian issues, and China and India are among them. And I think the teacher was right to call it China and India, um, I think we're, you will see continued pressure on them, but also continued dialogue as well. So there has been dialogue between China and America, and indeed the European Union will be discussing its China policy today. Um, so, so that work is going to continue, and we're at the, we sit at the Security Council with um, both countries, actually, and we will be working uh, with both of them to try to persuade them to get off the fence. I think they need to do that because they would bring a lot of other countries with them. But don't forget on the vote yesterday in the, in the United Nations, I think it was 140 countries but, you know, were supporting Ukraine. There's about 30 to 40 uh, 
sitting on the fence and only four support Russia. So that's there. Um, I think we need to get them off the fence. These are China and India are countries that certainly officially support the territorial integrity of countries. So, so that would make sense that they would support Ukraine in this case. Uh, but I agree with the teacher, they do need to get off the fence and support uh, what's right uh, in, in the world and, and be against what's wrong. Minister, you said uh, people are pretty calm on uh, the western half of uh, this. Uh, you're in the heart of it. Uh, tell us uh, what your sense of things are now uh, and what you've been hearing from people in Brussels about the prospect of a, a nuclear strike. Is it... A, a real threat, uh, or is it sabre rattling on, on uh, the part of the Americans? Oh, I don't think the Americans are sabre rattling. I mean, I think it, to be fair, it's the, the Russians who have made these points from time to time. So I'm not going to I'm not going to start blaming the Americans for that. What I can say, generally talking to Eastern European colleagues, and this has gone back even over the last six months, extreme nervousness, uh, extreme worry, extreme fear. Talking about. You know, even before our kids were talking about it, talking about kids writing to them as local MPs, uh, worried, will there be a war? And not being able to give uh, a proper answer. And that's various countries that, that border Russia, where there's a huge amount of fear. But I suppose the big priority, particularly among elected representatives at the moment, is who aren't directly involved in defence, um, would be the humanitarian situation. And we, we've taken in a lot of Ukrainian uh, refugees, there's over 10,000 now. But Poland has about 2 million uh, Moldova, which is a very, very poor country, has in the hundreds of thousands. Um, it's just completely different situation there uh, in Eastern Europe, and they have just completely different priorities at the moment. And I suppose what we've got to do is give them as much support as we can. Uh, we'll be working towards a financial package. We'll be working towards, I suppose, mm. a sharing uh, of, of, of refugees as well at some point, uh, if we can, but ultimately working towards ending this war uh, and rebuilding Ukraine. OK, there's been accusations as well of profiteering by airlines uh, specifically by Ryanair, uh, and uh, the doll was told uh, this week uh, that uh, the government will be speaking to Ryanair. Yeah, I'm, I'm not involved in those discussions. That'd be the Department of Transport, but I certainly think that, you know, absolutely there should be no profiteering if that's happening. Um, I know there's a lot of um, people coming in on flights from Poland and particularly some flights from Moldova as well. Uh, there should be no profiteering whatsoever. Uh, this is a once in a not even a lifetime situation for all of us. It's it's once in, 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 in almost a century. Um, and I think we all have to play our part. And, and you know, I'll, I'll leave those discussions to the Department of Transport. Uh, but I certainly, obviously, would be totally opposed to that. And should we be sending planes through the Irish government, the state be sending planes to places like Moldova, where the country is literally bursting at the seams. They're well over capacity to take some of the pressure off Moldova by flying refugees from there to here. All of that would be under active consideration, particularly at a European level. And I know there's a lot of work going on in Moldova to try and ease the pressure there. There's two issues in Moldova. Yes, they can't, they really can't cope with the amount of people that they have, but they're very, very close. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like Belfast to here in, in, in some ways. It's very, very close. So a lot of people want to stay there in the hope that the war will ease or the pressure will end, they can go back. So a lot of people won't want to leave uh, from, from the border areas. And that's part of the issue there. Uh, but certainly those that want to, I think we should facilitate uh, as easily as we can. But but it will require a, a pan-European response. They won't all want to go to one particular country. OK. Minister, many thanks. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, as always. Uh, that's Finnefall TD for me, the East Thomas Byrne, who is the Minister for European Affairs. 
and about today you might be asked to buy a daffodil. Why you might ask? Well if uh, that is a, a question uh, you think uh, needs answering let's get the answer for you now. Sinead Gillespie is uh, the National Campaigns Manager at the Irish Cancer Society. Good morning to you Sinead and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. What is Daffodil Day? Morning Michael, thanks so much for having us on. Um, so yes, thanks a million for, for having us on to talk about Daffodil Day. So we are back today for the first um, proper Daffodil Day in two years since COVID took place. Um, so we're delighted to say we have volunteers in different communities across Ireland who are turning their towns and villages yellow and selling daffodils to the members of the public on the streets today. So it's great to have everyone back out. Okay, and of course, uh, this is uh, the big fundraiser for the Irish Cancer Society and you literally hope to raise millions of euro to do some really, really important work. Yeah, this is our largest fundraiser um, of the year. So um, we're really excited to have it back and we're hopeful that we'll raise as much funds as possible. Um, each year, you know, almost 45,000 people in Ireland hear the words, you have cancer, and over 9,000 people will lose their lives to the illness each year. But because of the support we get from the public on Daffodil Day, we're there to support those cancer patients through every stage of their journey, um, from diagnosis um, through their treatment and um, if needed um, at the end of their uh, of life as well. So, you know, Daffodil is such an important day to allow us to be able to, to support cancer patients and their families across the country. Indeed, after life exists, uh, because the Irish Cancer Society will continue to provide counselling for those who are left behind. Uh, I think everybody, or most people at least, would be very aware of the Irish Cancer Society and uh, the important role that you play in the lives of us all unfortunately because cancer is so predominant. Uh, how much is a, a daffodil by the way? Yeah so a daffodil pin is three euro so you can get okay. them on the streets and then you might come across some volunteers that have different items of merchandise as well so mm. there's tea towels there's reusable mugs, there's water bottles for sale as well across the country and different items like that but if you don't see a volunteer on the street you can always go to our online shop as well on mm. cancer.ie forward slash shop and you'll see all of our um, brilliant daffodil day items available there as well. Mm. And by wearing a daffodil you're showing solidarity with the Irish Cancer Society and the people that uh, you look after for that matter and if you don't buy a daffodil or don't wear a daffodil you can buy uh, or make a donation online and you'll see daffodils online today on people's social media sites and all of that sort of thing as well Sinead. Yeah, so when you make a donation, um, you, um, you can go onto the cancer.ie website to make a donation there. And in the bounce back receipt that you get, there'll be a digital daffodil that you can share on your social media as well and encourage your friends and families to maybe donate as well if they can. Mm. And so it's a great way to, to take it online as well. Yeah, well, that's it. Uh, it reminds people, it encourages people and it raises money uh, for the great work uh, that uh, the Irish Cancer Society does an invaluable service or services as the case may be. Or Ordinarily, you would raise around €4 million. Last year, despite the pandemic, it went up to €7 million. Yeah, last year we had a record-breaking year, which was absolutely amazing. And it was brilliant as well, because in 2020, um, we we raised much less. So by, we, we made up for it last year there, which is brilliant. And I think like it was the support of the general public who knew that we couldn't get out on the streets and everyone rallied around us online. And we also had the support of the Late Late Show as well, which really helped to, to bump that number up. But we were blown away by the support last year and we're hopeful that we could even get some of that support again this year. OK, what does the daffodil signify? Or is it just that it's at this time of the year that we see daffodils uh, come into flower? 
Yeah, I think the daffodil, you know, they're one of the first flowers up in spring and it's kind of a sign of hope that the summer's coming, that spring has, has arrived and, and that the winter kind of months are over. So it's that kind of symbol of hope as well, um, which is what we like to give to cancer patients and their families across the country. Indeed, hope is uh, a big theme uh, when it comes uh, to Daffodil Day because cancer takes so much from so many that this Daffodil Day, the Irish Cancer Society says, we're taking back from cancer and that's up to people to make that happen. Uh, there is a slight problem, is there not, because of COVID, whilst you haven't had the chance uh, to be on streets uh, making bu- bucket collections over the last couple of years because of, of COVID. You can do that this year, but there's a, a lot of people who would ordinarily volunteer who are suffering from COVID and can't as a result. Yes, so we had, unfortunately this week, we had a few um, volunteers that had to pull out because they had a COVID diagnosis, which is totally understandable. So we are expecting to see less um, volunteers out on the streets today. So um, we do encourage anyone that if you don't spot a volunteer in your um, local area, please do, if you'd like to donate, go online. So you can, again, you can donate on cancer.ie or you can go on to your Revolut. If you have the Revolut app, there's a donate button there and you can donate to the Irish Cancer Society through that. Um, and you can text to donate as well. So you can text five zero, sorry, you can text Daffodil to 50300 to donate four euro as well. Well, I'm sure that everybody who can donate will donate and uh, that they know that the money will be very well spent as we're about to hear from uh, a local family but we'll say good morning to you Sinead and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today Sinead Gillespie who's the National Campaigns Manager at the Irish Cancer Society The first people we thought of the first like who do we talk to was um, the Irish Cancer Society I uh, got to speak to a very nice nurse on the phone and basically told her that we'd found out that morning that our 12-year-old had cancer and we didn't know what to do. How do you tell your 12-year-old daughter that um, she has cancer? Very calmly, um, she said she's 12, she has a phone, all she has to do is key in the words lump, neck, and she said she'd find out. It's better that she hears it from you and you have to be honest with her. Right, and that's part of an ad that this family from Dunboyne made for the Irish Cancer Society because that's Michelle, uh, Michelle Buckley, who discovered that her 12-year-old daughter, as you just heard, Abby Buckley, had cancer. My mum and dad came over and just sat down on either side of me and they told me I had cancer and I just sat there in shock trying to process what they just said. The two big ones were, am I going to die and am I going to lose my hair? All her thyroid had to be removed and 46 lymph nodes from one side of her neck. I had to bring Abby down to theatre and I will never forget that moment as long as I live. That's where your money goes when you donate uh, to Daffodil Day to help people like Abby and Michelle Buckley uh, in uh, that video there. That's just part of uh, what they said in uh, that video that uh, they recorded for the Irish Cancer Society. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
find the way daffodil.ie or cancer.ie if you want to donate online to the Irish Cancer Society this Daffodil Day. I'm going to give you another website address in a moment to do with COVID or, or the knock-on impact of COVID uh, because uh, there's a lot of planned operations, elective operations, procedures, whatever term you want to put it on it, that are being cancelled. Uh, if you've had a procedure that has been cancelled, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. We did ask to speak to Stephen McMahon of the Irish Patients Association about this this morning. Unfortunately, Stephen has COVID and doesn't feel up to the interview. He's self-isolating at the moment. But he did say to us that he would very much like to hear from listeners who are having their operations cancelled. If you're in that situation, can you contact Stephen McMahon of the Irish Patients Association? Info at irishpatients.ie that's info at irishpatients.ie they're just trying to get a handle on what's going on and the impact of it all thanks to Brian Andrato who was in touch with us Brian says uh, the problem is that we don't know what Putin is going to do next and this is what makes everyone so nervous all along Putin kept denying that he was going to invade Ukraine and then what do you know he did? Minister, I, I just want to touch on, on the 5th of this month, uh, Russia categorised Ireland as being a, an unfriendly uh, country, along with a, a number of other countries. And I just want to ask, what assessment has been carried out and what threat does that pose to, to Ireland and our uh, security? Um, in relation to Ireland being categorised as an unfriendly country, uh, all of the EU has been categorised as as being unfriendly towards towards Russia, and that is a term that they've used before. Um, and then they take action on the back of that, um, which hasn't happened yet, actually, in relation to to any actions on the back of that statement uh, a number of weeks ago. Um, but I think we can expect expect at some point in time they will. So, for example. Last year, um, when there was tension between the Czech Republic and Russia, uh, the Czech Republic were named an unfriendly country uh, and there were, um, there were actions that Russia took on the back of that. So we don't know what will happen uh, in relation to that. To be honest, I think there are, there are bigger issues at play. Yeah, but same the case. That's uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, responding to Sinn Féin's Johnny Brady in the Dáil yesterday. The American president, who we heard from earlier in the programme, is going to be in Poland today. I've been in refugee camps. I've been in war zones for the last 15 years, and it's it's it's, it's devastating. And uh, but the thing you look at the most is you see these young children. You see children without parents that are in those camps or in uh, refugees. You see women and husbands, men and women who are completely lost and have no nose. You see the look, that blank look on their face, that absolute feeling of my God. Where am I? What's going to happen to me? And so it, what it will do, it will reinforce my commitment to have the United States make sure we are a major piece of dealing with the relocation of all those folks, as well as humanitarian assistance needed both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine. For example, this is not something that Poland or Romania or Germany should carry on their own. This is an international responsibility. The United States is a leader, one of the leaders in the international community, has an obligation to be engaged. 
to be engaged and do all we can to ease the suffering and pain of innocent women and children and men, for that matter, throughout throughout Ukraine. President Biden, who will be in Poland today, assessing the refugee situation, the situation that people find themselves in after getting out of Ukraine. But what about those people who are still in Ukraine? When civilians are in a situation like this, uh, and you, you have to place yourself in the situation that many civilians find themselves in, someone like Mariupol. It doesn't matter if the hospital is open or closed. You're in a basement. You cannot move. You are stuck. If you're in trouble, if you're having a difficult pregnancy or you're having a, a crisis, a cardiac crisis or a stroke, or if you've been injured, uh, the, the risks that anyone will have to take to take you to healthcare, even if that healthcare is available and open and safe, the journey there can be deadly. And this is what we're seeing in Mariupol. We've seen this again and again and again in urban warfare particularly, where the journey to the health facility in itself becomes a life-threatening experience. Uh, The pressure that people must be under, the horror uh, to sit and watch loved ones potentially die because you cannot take them to healthcare. It's not just the attacks on healthcare. That in itself is an attack on healthcare, in denying access to facilities by terrifying people to the point where they cannot move to get water, they cannot move to get food, they cannot move to get health care. This is dehumanizing at a level that is very hard to explain. It is very hard to understand. Uh, It is very hard to even imagine what people are going through in this situation. Uh, But this has occurred in cities all over the world. This occurred in Aleppo. This occurred in many, many, many places around the world. Uh, And I've said this before, we have reached, maybe, for once uh, in my lifetime, an appropriate level level of horror at what's happening in Ukraine, and particularly what's happening in Mariupol. And I hope that is the new level of horror we will express in all of these situations around the world uh, from now on. That's Dr Mike Ryan of uh, the World Health Organisation. Thanks to John and Navin listening every day to all of the talk about the rise in the price of oil, gas, electricity, petrol, diesel and uh, that fuel might be rationed. John says people survived the last world war and we're in a wartime again. So we're going to have to take some pain. There will probably be rationing but it won't be the end of the world. Buy an extra duvet and wrap it around you if you're cold. Looking forward to the day when the roads around local schools won't be four-wheel drive jeeps uh, full of four-wheel I think it is uh, and the yummy mummies all have them and now maybe they just might have to walk uh, their little darlings to school thank you indeed uh, John for that uh, thanks as well to Frank who's texting saying I just wondered if some of the top officials and CEOs high earners reduced their big wages from the hundreds of thousands of euro that they're on uh, could we help some charities because it's unfair Frank thinks very unfair that, that some people are paid so much uh, and then people uh, like himself uh, end up paying or donating uh, money to charity uh, when uh, they don't have it as such. Thank you indeed, Frank, uh, for your text at the programme today. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM.
Well, COVID is being felt across the country and indeed it is certainly having an impact on health services once again. And once again, we'll speak to Professor Anthony Staines, a Professor of Health Systems in uh, Nursing in DCU and spokesperson for the ISAG, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Good morning to you, Professor Staines, and thanks as always uh, for your time with us on uh, the programme again today. I think when we lifted all of uh, the restrictions uh, you were warning that we were moving too far too soon and I'm sure you don't want to say I hate to tell you so or I hate to say I told you so but uh, it appears to be the case We were all hoping this would not happen but as WHO has said countries that pull back the the restrictions particularly things like mask wearing uh, staying outdoors, ventilation they're now suffering a very similar set of problems, rising case numbers, uh, increasing numbers of hospital admissions, increasing workmen's, uh, increasing absence from work, and so on. And we're, we're seeing very much the same pattern here. And that's kind of unfortunate. Now, what's, what's good is that we have a very high vaccination rate. And that vaccination rate means that very few people are getting critically ill we have 40-odd people, 50-odd people in intensive care, uh, whereas we could have several hundred. We have, we have people dying, but not nearly as many as we would have without the vaccine. So the vaccines have taken the really sharp bit off this, but they don't greatly affect the overall number of cases. And they, they probably reduce the risk of long-term effects a bit, but they don't prevent long-term effects. And increasingly, it's long-term effects that we're worrying about. You know, that the, mm. the long-term effects of having COVID five or six times may be quite significant. And we don't know yet. It's too soon to say. Right. But we're seeing it in our hospitals. We're seeing it in our workplaces. I was talking to colleagues in one of the children's hospitals this morning. And they've had to redeploy staff from all over the place purely to cover sickness absence. They, they have kids with COVID in the hospital, but that's not the problem. The problem is sickness absence covering uh, all the other services they're providing is very, very difficult. And many other sectors are telling me the same thing. I and mean, it's the same problem in schools. There's a large number of teachers are out sick. There's a large number of kids are out sick from schools. Lots of places, uh, they, their staff are out sick. You know, places where absence rates might be 2%, 3%, or now 7%, 8%, 10%. It's all costing money. Mm. So it's all taking a long time to fix that. I'm very surprised to hear you say that people are getting COVID five and six times. Uh, In those cases, are people not sick every time that they get it, or are they getting sick from COVID, feeling unwell, uh, and getting it five or six times? It's very variable. And we're we're not recording the figures here in a way that makes it easy to to answer that question for Ireland. In other parts of the world, they are answering that question. And it's very exceptional to get COVID six times. It has happened, but it's very exceptional. But it's not uncommon to have two or three. Mm. And some of the larger UK studies, they have quite substantial numbers of people who've now been infected two or three times. And we, we just don't have the Irish, we don't have the corresponding Irish figures. 
I, I guess it's just that when I, I, I hear from people who felt very unwell because mm. of COVID, I would think that they would do everything in their power not to get it again. It's very difficult to avoid it. I mean, the, the, the problem is that we've, we've let this virus spread globally. Now, a lot of public health people were saying 18 months ago that we, one thing we had to do is to vaccinate the whole planet so we wouldn't have new strains emerging or at least we'd have a chance of getting on top of them. But we've chosen not to do that. We've had this Omicron strain, the BA1 and BA2 strains have emerged. And there's some of the most infectious viruses we've seen so far. I mean, they're, they're close to as infectious as measles or chickenpox. Mm. But the problem is that measles and chickenpox give you basically lifelong immunity. Uh, COVID infection doesn't seem to. Um, and hence the repeated infections. And we don't, we, we do understand that this post viral syndrome you get with COVID is commoner than with other viral infections. It seems to be more severe than most. Mm. And there's a real concern. And we're not going to know the answer to this for five years. But there's a real concern now that this is a systemic virus. And that if you get infected, several times, mm. which may become quite a common experience, the risks to you for, of that could be quite substantial. We've seen the American figures that says you know, the risk of heart disease goes up, the risk of stroke goes up. And that, that's new information as of about two weeks ago. But it's very solid information. Do you think that people are, are making a decision, a decision they feel is an informed decision, and they're saying to themselves, well, you've got to weigh one thing against the other, and I don't want to go back to cocooning and not living my life, and if I run the risk of getting COVID, I run the risk of getting COVID because I'm not particularly worried about getting COVID, because if you look at the hospital figures, for example, half of the people who are in hospital uh, are, are there because of COVID, the other half are not, and if uh, that line of logic extends into ICU, you could say out of the 40 people in there, that 40 of the people are there for other reasons and happen to have COVID and half of them quite possibly uh, weren't vaccinated. So you're probably talking about five unfortunates out of uh, the 20,000 every day who are developing the disease. There's a bit of a false narrative about people who are sent into hospital because they have COVID and people who turn up in hospital because they're sick. And it turns out that part of the reason they're sick is because they have COVID. The common experience in hospitals now, and for many, many years, has been that most people in hospitals have more than one thing wrong with them. So a lot of people in hospitals have maybe chronic obstructive airways disease and diabetes. They might have cancer and high blood pressure. They might have several different things wrong with them. But it may be the COVID that tips them over into needing to be in hospital. And it isn't discovered till they arrive in hospital. Mm. You know, the, the, reason, the reason this person is sick and now needs hospital care is that they've been infected. But I think more than that, what we're, we're saying to the public is that there isn't a binary choice between, you know, we all retreat to our houses and have food parcels delivered and we all run around basically get COVID. There's, there's a lot of options about protecting yourself and the first of those, obviously, is vaccination. I mean, there is good evidence that vaccination has substantial benefits for everyone. 
Uh, we need to vaccinate children. About one in four children between 5 and 11 have had a vaccine. We need to up that number sizably and substantially. We, we need to vaccinate communities that have, have low vaccination rates. And we really need to start wearing masks. Hmm. I, mean, I, was, I, I had to fly to Milan for work yesterday. And I left Dublin Airport where, although there are signs saying you must wear a mask, about half the people in security were wearing masks. Hmm. And I arrived in Bergamo Airport where there's similarly signs, but everyone is wearing a mask. We can do a lot with air filtration, but we haven't done anything with air filtration in schools. People have been calling for this since August of last year, but nothing much has happened. We can do a lot with air filtration in pubs, in restaurants, Mm. in entertainment venues. We haven't done it. We can do a lot with ventilation, and that's obviously easier now as we move into spring and summer. And how much protection can you get from a mask? If you go on to a packed bus, uh, are you safe if you're wearing a mask? If you go into a, a packed pub that doesn't have that sort of air filtration system that you're talking about, are you safe if you wear a, a mask as much as possible? You're safer, but the benefit, the real benefit comes when everybody's wearing masks. And I, I've, I can show you photographs of buses in Taiwan where they have air filters on the buses. Now, I'm sorry, I think Mm. putting an air filter in a bus is likely to make them safer. And it's likely to make people more willing to travel on public transport. Because one of the issues we're getting now is people won't travel on public transport because they're worried. The other so problem we, is, of course, them. the other problem is, of course, that you can't eat or drink while you're wearing a, a mask. So does that mean yeah. that you're uh, at risk if you go into a packed pub or restaurant? You're at some risk. And I'm not saying this has no impact. You know, we want to start thinking about this in the way that a lot of African countries think about malaria. You know, malaria is there. Malaria ultimately shapes an awful lot of what people do. It shapes an awful lot of people's lives. There's not much we can do about that. There's big campaigns to eradicate malaria. There's a lot of money going into it. But it's hard work, it's slow, it's difficult. It takes a long time to get it done. And that's where we want to go. That's what we want to be doing with this eventually. But it's gonna take us some substantial time to get there. But until we get there, it is going to shape every side of our lives. And the trick is going to be not saying on the one hand, you know, the only thing you can do is sit in your garage with the air filter turned on and never come out again. And on the other hand, saying, you know, eat, drink and be merry, run around to dances and sneeze on people. There's a path between these two. There really is. And we have to find that path. Okay. Well... I heard you loud and clear, I'm sure many of our listeners did, and I hope uh, even more than that uh, may have. Uh, But thank you indeed, as always, uh, for joining us, because there is undoubtedly a lot of COVID about, and uh, there's a lot of people who are succumbing to it, and quite a a lot of people in hospital. Uh, And as uh, Professor Staines explained, uh, they may not... 
have necessarily gone in because of COVID, but COVID might have tipped them over uh, that point where they needed hospital care for something else. That's uh, Professor Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems in Nursing in DCU and spokesperson for ISAG. That's the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Now, Seamus in Dundalk has been on to us. He says, you have to feel very sorry for hospital staff trying to cope with another COVID wave. They must be exhausted when there are no beds available in wards, emergency departments, clogging up and people's patients wearing thin. Not an easy situation for anybody to be working in. And then on top of that, so many hospital staff themselves are catching the virus uh, again, which is very tough on those who are working in a short staff situation. And in Trim, thank you for your text to the programme this morning. She says, well, here we go again. No lessons learned. Blame game again. Nowhere for people to go. Vaccine number four is coming up. Has the Minister for Health left the country? Uh, no, the Minister for Health has COVID. <laughs> That's uh, the ironic situation. Um, uh, the, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has COVID as well for the second time. Uh, there's a lot of, I think it's kind of getting to a stage of hands up who hasn't had COVID at this stage. Pat in Balbriggan says, Morning Michael, I'm here almost two weeks in the Lourdes Hospital in isolation ward on oxygen 24-7. I'm really sorry to hear that, Pat. He says, I'm fully vaccinated, doubly boosted, the lot. I'd love to know where is Dr. Houlihan and his team or the Minister for Health? Not a word from them. Uh, we weren't allowed to look over our neighbour's wall once. Uh, and now there's over 20,000 cases a day, no mask being worn. This government is a joke, changing the goalposts where and when they want. P.S. Staff at the Lords are amazing. Thanks, Pat. I'm sorry to hear that you're so unwell that you need uh, that care of those amazing staff. And they really are amazing. It's only when you're in there that you realise that. And I know that uh, myself from first-hand experience. Thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to text us or call us. Or if you have been in touch in some other way today, always good to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. The KBC Bank Ireland Index has recorded the sharpest month-on-month drop in sentiment in two years and estimates that the economy-wide hit from higher inflation is going to be over €4 billion. That breaks down at €2,000 per household. The government is absolutely aware of the anxiety, the additional cost uh, that so many across our country are facing at the moment due to the rise in energy prices that is mostly being caused by what is happening in the war in Ukraine. We are aware of the worry that many now are contending with as they see their bills go up, uh, you know, due to the rising price of food, due in turn Uh, to the food consequences and the raw material consequences of what is now happening in that awful, awful war. But it is precisely in recognition of the additional costs that so many are facing that the government has already acted. The government, since we brought in last year's budget, has already acted on two separate occasions. We have brought in measures that are now in the process of being implemented to make a difference. We have brought in the additional payment of €125 for those who are most at risk of energy poverty. We have brought in and will shortly see implemented the €200 rebate in relation to electricity bills. And only a number of weeks ago, 
have brought in additional measures in relation to the price of fuel at the pump and also other measures to try to help with the cost of living, which we know is building. That's the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak to Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Michael. Uh, I suppose it goes without saying that we're living through hard times. Hard times are going to get a a lot harder by all uh, accounts, and uh, the government acting in whatever way it can uh, is... That the position as articulated by the Minister there, one that you accept? No, I don't accept it at all, in fact. Uh, even to go back and look at what he actually said, he talked about how they targeted everybody and uh, they, they've acted twice already. They have acted twice already. What they did was welcome, but what they omitted was very significant. Uh, people on uh, core social welfare rates got no benefit whatsoever unless they happen to be, have a fuel allowance. A great many of them do not have fuel allowance. There's an awful lot of people uh, in fuel poverty who do, who do not qualify for one reason or another for the fuel allowance. So it, it is just codology for government to claim that simply because they increase the fuel allowance, which itself is a good thing to do, I recommend that's a good idea, but don't tell me that that actually solves the problem. It is. It doesn't. Like at the bottom of uh, at, at, at the end of the day, increases in the cost of li- living impact hardest on those who have no additional disposable income, basically. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and they're basically struggling to make ends meet. All right, they're the people who get hardest hit. Who are they? Well, over six hundred and sixty thousand of them are living in poverty. A great many of those are depending on welfare. Two hundred and ten by thousand, by the way, are children living in poverty. Now, a great many of these did not benefit from either of the increases or even either of the interventions by government since the cost of living issue started to impinge on them. And it didn't start to impinge on them really until it started to bite people on middle incomes. Then they, they were shouting at the government and then government began to listen. They weren't prepared to take a, to look at it previously. Like in the budget for for example, the government gave an increase uh, of five euro in the, in welfare, and almost every minister in the cabinet, and maybe not all of them, but almost all of them, I've heard them on radio mm-hmm. and television saying, when we dealt with the, we've dealt with the social welfare mm-hmm. issue in the budget. No, you have not, minister. No, you have not, because what happened in actual fact? Um, the, the, the actual uh, the inflation rate is going to be well over 5% this year to, to actually just keep pay, pace with the value of the, keep the well, value of yeah, the welfare payment. It's going to be... Would it require 10 euro of an increase? It's going to be significantly more than that, uh, 8% uh, by the summer, uh, and uh, that's uh, probably going to fall back to an average of 6% according to the SRI, but that's before you take into account all of the unknowns, and it could go to 10 or 15%, God knows, because we're living in on precedented times. And it's not fair to suggest that in October, uh, that when the government was making its budget plans, it knew the situation that we would be in today because there was undoubtedly the prospect of inflation. But the thought on that was that it was only going to last for a couple of months. 
That's correct. And I, I mean, we disputed that at the time, uh, Social Justice Ireland, um, in our response to the budget. And we basically said that this, there, there's likely to be inflation and to actually uh, 10 euro a week of an increase was mm. required for social welfare benef- uh, recipients. Now, uh, they only gave five, not having given any increase at all in the two preceding budgets. But that was so, based on what they knew then and what we know now is very, very different, okay, isn't let's, it? Let's not, let's not to worry too much about, about what, what they knew and didn't know. Uh, mm. I agree with you. Oh, no, but it does matter because what do you do now when you're going to take in uh, 10,000 uh, as is the case this week uh, and uh, 20,000 refugees by the end of next week and 40,000 by the end of April and possibly 100,000, possibly 200,000 who'll all need welfare, who'll all need housing, who'll all need uh, the benefits that you're talking about, education, uh, education and, and, and hospitals and, and, transport, and transport and everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, okay, we are where we are today. It's a very different situation. To, de- to deal with this, uh, we, and, and not alone that, the, the inflation situation is beyond what anybody thought was likely to be uh, when the budget was actually announced. So we have a situation where that needs to be dealt with now. In the two initiatives that the government has taken already, it has ignored people on core welfare rates. These are the people who, are, who have least leeway uh, to actually deal with the struggle of trying to make ends meet in a, in a rising inflation situation. Uh, so I, oh, I would have thought that the obvious thing to do was to increase core welfare rates by at least a fiver, uh, possibly more, but at least a fiver. Uh, now, it might sound like an awful lot, but uh, over over a year, it's 250 euros. Uh, it would make some d- dent uh, for those people who have no leeway and have got nothing uh, from uh, the government's two previous inv- uh, interventions to deal with the rising costs. The point of saying, though, the point of making is that you can't even calculate how many people you'll be giving that to. That, that, and that is correct. And I think that's, that raises an issue uh, about how you fund it. Because I think we're facing a situation uh, that, that is unique almost, like we haven't had this kind of situation before. And I think the way to deal with it is to, deal with, is to, is to follow the, the, the discussion we, you and I had on this program uh, about over, over two years ago at the start of COVID, when we were talking about how do you fund the ex- additional expenditure on COVID. And what we actually said was uh, we were proposing that uh, the government take a war approach. Now, there was no war at the time, but we take a war approach as if there were a war and deal with the, uh, the huge new in, uh, tens of billions of additional money that would be required to deal with COVID uh, to get that money and borrow it from the European Central Bank or wherever uh, and to deal with it in the same way that the Brits and others others uh, had dealt with we'd say the funding, uh, repaying their debts after the First World War. They basically warehoused the debt Okay, put it aside in a in a in a very long term bond of some kind, and then they pay it back over sixty eighty. In fact, it was a hundred years for the Brits after the first uh, World War. Now, and they only finished paying it back very a few mm. few short years ago. Now, uh, I think we're actually in a real war situation here uh, right now with mm. the Ukraine and Russian situation, and we're go- we're going to. Uh, and I think the, the, it's very welcome the way Ireland has welcomed Ukrainians and so on. Mm. That's the way we should deal with migrants all the time. Uh, and we haven't had that good a track record previously, but we have a very, this is a very good example of how, what needs to be done. But I think we need, them, we need to realize that it's going to cost us very serious money. Okay. And the way to deal with that is, is do a similar thing again 
and put the, and not, not not to be sort of trying to balance our mm. budget book on one side while at the same time dealing with a hundred thousand extra people uh, and, and as you say paying all the bills that are, that arise as a result of that on top of what we already have. Okay, to some degree, at least uh, the government, uh, instead of uh, spending more helping people, is hoping to make it, it cheaper for people to buy fuel in particular, uh, with a reduction in VAT, and it's looking for flexibility from European Union to allow it to do that. A- another measure the government, or the Tonisha at least, has said that the government is looking at is a middle rate of income tax, so that you'd have uh, the 20 and the 40, uh, and uh, at a certain point, uh, people would be paying 30%, so you'd have three rates of income tax. What do you make of that? Well, it depends. It depends on the, on the detailed. Very simple thing: is he going to have? What's, is he going to leave the top rate of tax at forty, or is he going to introduce a fourth higher tax rate? I tell you why that's mm. important. Um, if when you bring down the tax rate from forty to thirty, uh, the, the, uh, I'm mm. sorry, mm. create a middle tax rate of thirty. What you're doing in effect is bringing down uh, uh, the forty percent rate for people across whatever range he decides uh, and bring that down from 40 to 30. So take it, take it this way. Um, if he was to say uh, that we would introduce this new uh, 30% uh, tax rate and that would be on the, the next 20,000, say, mm. after, uh, after the, the, the standard rate yeah. and before the 40% kicked in. And if there was no other changes in the system, that would mean a person on a quarter of a million euro would gain 2,000 euro a year mm. into their pocket. Now, with due respects to the Tarnishta, uh, is that what we want to do or need to do at this okay. moment? We're uh, talking uh, about the uh, need for the, extra uh, money. And the government will be collecting less in revenue because... Precisely. So, so, so the government is saying, so, so to uh, shore that up, you're saying a fourth rate. So you'd have 20, 30, 40, and what would the fourth rate be? decide what you want to do, like 45, 50, it depends. Like, yeah. But the, the, bottom, the bottom line in it is uh, it, a lot depends on what the range is, uh, like how, if, what amounts, what, what pay amounts you're paying, what tax rates you're mm. paying on what amounts of money okay, you're, you're Let's earning. say 50% on earnings over? I mean, a 50, if it were a fifty percent rate, I would have it much higher. I think it would be about forty-five, and okay. I would do it. I would do it at kind of uh, uh, somewhere in the region of maybe seventy, eighty in that space. Uh, I'd have to. I'll tell you, uh, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's kind of guessing. I'll tell you the way to do it. Actually, is to see uh, to work out exactly how the thing would balance itself out, so that we'd mm-hmm. say the, the your man uh, and a quarter of a million didn't wind up. Get, getting a balance, uh, getting two two thousand into his pocket when the person on welfare isn't getting a cent uh, of an increase so, or uh, mm-hmm. trying to deal with the, the okay, actual so that, that, uh, situation. That two thousand he, he gained because of the drop exactly. <laughs> would be made up because of the increase. Exactly, that, and that would be the way to do the calculation. Okay, all right, interesting stuff, Sean. We we'll leave you there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on uh, the program. Uh, that's Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it was a busy day in uh, the Stormont Assembly yesterday, uh, the last day, in fact, uh, that uh, the Assembly sits uh, before the elections which are due to take place on the 5th of May, possibly the last time the Assembly will sit, at least in uh, the way that we know it. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down, joins us and uh, I think it's probably true to say, Jim Wells, your last day in the Assembly. Oh yes, 
um, after 27 and a half years, um, unless something dramatic happens, yes, that's that's my last day at Stormont. Um, bittersweet experience, of course. Uh, some things I'll miss uh, and others I won't. And uh, so it's quite surreal, actually, realising that you'll not be back in the building. After 27 years, it must be incredibly surreal. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you have uh, many good memories uh, and some not so good for that matter. Oh, some great memories and some horrible ones. Uh, topping the poll in 2003, becoming the health minister in 2014 would be the highlights, but it has been extremely volatile. I think we've had four suspensions in my time, including one that lasted for four and a half years and the more recent one that lasted for three years. And it looks like we could be facing another one uh, come May the 5th. So, um Certainly, unlike the Doyle, which no matter how controversial it becomes, it's always there. Uh, that's certainly not the case with Stormont. Okay. Are, are you surprised uh, that the Assembly has broken up, that we're going into an election and there's been no resolution, nowhere near a resolution when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol? I, I think most likely the reason for that is that it's been completely overshadowed by the war. Yes. I mean, I, I think being realistic about it, there will be no movement from the European Union uh, once the people of Ukraine are, are fighting for their, their survival. I mean, that is certainly the biggest issue at the moment. Um, and the protocol is a big issue. And of course, who becomes first and deputy first minister is a big issue. So there are many, many um, issues in the Irish Language Act. And you really do see how, how difficult it is to sustain the evolution of Northern Ireland. And under the system we have, it's, it's practically impossible. Mm. Is um, the... Election going to be fought on the merits and otherwise of the protocol? The protocol will feature, I think, also the, the rampant inflation and cost of living. You know, energy prices like they are in the Republic are rapidly rising. Uh, health is obviously an issue. Though the parties probably will have very similar policies in that. The protocol will dominate the, within unionism. Because at the end of the day, it's costing us. We, we reckon with £850 million a year simply has to be resolved. Um, but at the moment, there's no sign of that for, for, for very obvious reasons. So it's a very, very stormy future ahead for the Assembly, but it was ever thus. Uh, and will you be campaigning? I don't think so, no. Um, okay. Mm. I, I, uh, I think... Uh, this, this, this is a, this, this is the break. I, I'm not going to be one of those who I noticed in the door people, the ghosts of TDs past, uh, walking around the building lost and forlorn looking because they've lost their seats. Um, I, I won't be in that category. I'm going to have to make a clean break. Um, still would like to do a lot of commentary. Mm. I'd still like to continue to commentary even August stations like Loud FM. Indeed. Um, mm. in the future. Um, I think I'll do some election monitoring. Um, throughout the world and um, uh, but I really I will have to find something very different um, for, for full-time employment mm-hmm. and uh, I've given that no thought because it's, this has occurred very suddenly A clean uh, break but is it an acrimonious break? It's great disappointment I mean I don't think anybody who's deselected after 27 years mm-hmm. could be anything but some, somewhat gutted by that um, and that, that has been difficult to take, uh, very, very difficult. Um, I've sort of come to terms with it. And I mean, I'm 65 in April, so it's not, you know, it's not if I'm going early, as it were. But, you know, it, it has been hard going. And, 
but uh, that's what politics is like. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, just ask Fianna Foyle what they had to face in 2008, and they'll tell you that you know, it can all come crashing down around your, your head very, very quickly. Uh, and that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, cutthroat. Uh, what is going to happen after this election, do you think? I mean, uh, as a very uh, experienced politician, uh, closer to the issues and the people uh, who have issues with uh, the protocol in particular, uh, do you think that there is the prospect that power sharing has, uh, to all intents and purposes, ended? I think the mandatory coalition always made it terribly difficult, even when times were good. When you get major issues like the protocol arising, it makes it completely unworkable. It's like in the Doyle, Sinn Féin, Fine Gael, Fine Foyle, and Labour all being first forced to work together in government. It just couldn't survive. <laughs> and so therefore, I think there's a dark future ahead because if the DUP emerges as the large unionist party, they've made it absolutely clear that they will not go back to business as normal as long as the protocol is in place. And, and at the moment, there doesn't seem to be much progress being made. So, for instance, uh, you know, initially after May the 5th, there undoubtedly will be some form of suspension, I would have thought. Um, looking into a crystal ball, which hasn't always been too reliable. but um, And then we still haven't dealt with the issue of who becomes First Minister. Mm. And then we've got the spectre of the Irish Language Act coming as well. I mean, there are so many difficulties. And what we know is that those difficulties cause suspension. Mm. Uh, and the war will continue to be uh, important in all of this uh, because if, if, if it's preventing a resolution now, uh, there won't be a resolution for as long as the war goes on, I take it. Yes, and obviously all parties in the Assembly and indeed in the Doyle utterly condemn the invasion of a peaceful state and uh, the, the, you know, the, the killing of people, 40, 40 million people thrown into absolute state of terror. I mean, on that we're totally united, but the implications of that are, are quite extreme, both for inflation, fuel prices, and of course for the EU, whose attention will clearly be diverted to what is a, a huge issue for them. And an issue which I think they've generally handled quite well. Do you think that the DUP will be the largest unionist party and do you think that the DUP will be the largest party uh, when the seats are filled? I think it's very certain we'll be the largest unionist party. I think even the, the most pessimistic pundits are saying that that's possible. As far as the largest party, that's neck and neck. That could go either way. Mm. Uh, on a good day, the DUP could easily secure that. On a bad day... It could be um, much more difficult, and it could be a tie, and heaven knows what we do if it's a tie. Okay. I haven't a clue. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, sorry for laughing, but yeah, Northern Ireland politics is never straightforward, is it? Anything is possible. Yeah. Okay, but if Sinn Féin was uh, the largest party, do you think uh, that the DUP would vote for a Sinn Féin First Minister? I think that's unlikely. Okay. Uh, certainly if I was there, which I won't be, I would certainly be advocating not to do that. And it's interesting that the Ulster Unionist Party haven't made any definitive statement on that either. Mm. Because clearly if Sinn Féin were to become the First Minister in Northern Ireland and the Taoiseach in the Republic, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, 
they would drive forward the, the United uh, Ireland agenda with, with great speed. And mm. obviously we're not in the business of assisting them in that. Well, Mary Lou MacDonald has been doing that in uh, the last week, saying the time is now for a referendum and making that case to Europe. And uh, I'm sure... Uh, that despite you stepping down from politics now, uh, you'd continue to disagree with that position? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's the fundamental basis of unionism, that all the people of Northern Ireland will benefit from remaining within the fifth largest economy in the world, within the UK, and a referendum would plunge the country into a state of turmoil because it would probably last a couple of years of campaign. And, you know, we're just certainly not in a position at the moment to have that chaos inflicted upon us. I think we've enough on our plate. Mm. What do you think will happen? Uh, I mean, we've gone through some scenarios uh, 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 and uh, things that possibly won't happen, but what do you think actually will happen? Uh, uh, have you got a, a crystal ball uh, and tell us uh, that, that can tell us, that can help you tell us uh, where we'll be in a year from now? Well, what I can say is from the experience of so many suspensions and crises is that there is a period when there's no devolution and eventually the public force their MLS back into into the parliament buildings. Uh, And I think that's probably, I mean, the last suspension, which ended in December 2019, uh, basically because the public said enough enough for what want you back, you have to find some agreement, and they did. The protocol will require, I think, longer in terms of negotiations. And I cannot see how the DUP could possibly uh, declare business as normal with this enormous constitutional and economic threat hanging over us. In the same way, you can say that if the border was in the uh, island of Ireland, I don't think SDLP or Sinn Féin would tolerate it either. I think they would be out. So therefore, why should we be less strident when we're talking about a border between us and the rest of the UK? Okay. Jim Wells, thank you indeed for joining us. Can I just thank you and and your team for being so helpful and friendly to me. I have been on your areas quite a lot. Mm. I'm not quite certain what the future holds, but it has been a pleasure to work with Ireland's highest paid local radio (laughs) presenter. (laughs) Which is another way to uh, saying to uh, uh, the younger generation uh, in this country, uh, keep out of local radio. (laughs) (laughs) Jim Wells, thank you very much. It's always been a pleasure to talk to you and I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Certainly hope that's uh, the case. And thank you, as I say, for joining us. Uh, Jim Wells, uh, DUP MLA for Southdown. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's hear some more thoughts on the war. There are billions of Russian rubles reportedly sloshing around the IFSC. Uh, the IFSC has been used reportedly to circumvent sanctions. Um, we have had reports by the currency, which talks about 13 billion euros of, uh, of domiciled money in the IFSC. Uh, reports by the Irish Times, which show that 34 billion euros were held by opaque Russian-linked shell companies registered in the IFSC. And Colum Kina has done work in relation to a network of bank accounts moving billions of euros from Russia uh, to the West through the IFSC. Now, this question has been put to the government since the start of this conflict in relation to what research and study is the government doing to make sure that that just can't happen uh, anymore? And what are we doing to close down 
that's circumventing uh, of sanctions internationally against Russia. That's local AIN2 TD, Pader Tobin. I think we're all committed here that um, Russia's ability to fight a war should be hurt as much as possible financially. Uh, could you tell us the status in relation to the the list of companies that are still trading with Russia that we in the EU Affairs uh, Committee were told by Ambassador Harasko from Ukraine uh, was given to your department. If we could just find out the information in relation to that. And they also have the question of, um, and I get that it's far better that we act across Europe as opposed to unilaterally, but at the same time, one of the requests also was that we would uh, cut off the access of Russia and um, Russia and its proxies uh, to seaports here. That's local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Muraku. Now let's talk about a food shortage. There could very well be one because of the breadbasket of Europe, that is Russia, and the Ukraine at war. Here's the American president. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages. And uh, and it's going to be real. The, The price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia, it's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. And uh, because both uh, Russia and Ukraine have been the breadbasket of Europe in terms of wheat, for example, just give you one example. But we had a long discussion uh, in the G7 with, uh, um, the, uh, with both uh, the United States, which has a, as a significant, the third largest producer of wheat in the world, as well as Canada, which is also a major, major producer. And we both talked about how we could increase and disseminate more rapidly food, food shortages. And in addition to that, we talked about uh, urging all the European countries and everyone else to end trade restrictions on, on sending uh, lim- limitations on sending food abroad. Right, that's the food shortage. It's not the biggest concern, of course, uh, because there's the nuclear threat. Uh, And it's not just the nuclear weapons. Take into account the likes of uh, the Chernobyl plant, which is now under Russian control. You've uh, you've all seen the... uh the footage of the the nuclear plants and the Chernobyl plant, and 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 also Ukraine obviously has had a very large uh, chemical industry. So for, first and foremost, in any situation where you have an, an industry based on radionuclear or, or chemical or chemicals, you have to have very high levels of safety, very high levels of regulation, very well qualified staff to manage those facilities so that you can keep them safe. That's normal practice. If you add a war into that. Uh, uh, and, and conflict and bombing um, uh, the, and changing control of facilities, then you introduce a very high level of risk. And we've seen, we've seen that occur. Uh, staff having to stay on rotation for days and days to maintain uh, safety of facilities, uh, uh, firefights around facilities. Can you imagine being a worker with responsibility for the safety of a nuclear plant with the firefight and bombs and flares going off outside? It, it, it's tough enough work. It's responsible enough without that pressure. Um, so there's a huge issue here just on safety and maintaining that safety so that there is no inadvertent situation in which safety standards drop or where there's an inadvertent damage to a facility that may lead to a chemical or radionuclear release. 
uh, and we are very focused on working with our, 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 our other UN agency colleagues and with the Ministry of Health. Um, uh, in general, we work on, on preparedness for, for all hazards, chemical, biologic, nuclear and others. And we have been working for years with our colleagues uh, in, in Ukraine, as we do in many countries, on preparedness for, for such industrial um, accidents. That's Mike Ryan of uh, the World Health Organization. And that's as things stand before there's talk of Russian involvement. I had a, uh, a very straightforward conversation with, with she uh, now, I guess it's uh, six days ago, seven days ago in that range. And uh, I uh, made it clear to him, I made no threats, but I made it clear to him that make sure he understood the consequences of him helping Russia as had been reported and as, as what it was expected. And uh, I made no threats, but I pointed out the number of American and foreign corporations that left Russia as a consequence of their barbaric behavior. And I indicated that uh, I knew how much he, uh, because we had long discussions in the past about his interest in making sure he had economic relations and economic growth with Europe and the United States, and indicated that he'd be putting himself at significant jeopardy in those, in those aims if, in fact, he were to move forward. I uh, am not going to comment on any detail about what we know or don't know as a consequence of that conversation. But uh, tomorrow, tomorrow or next Monday, that Ursula is having that conference with China. That's Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission, and that's to take place uh, Monday week on the 1st of April. That's the American President, Joe Biden, brings our programme to its conclusion for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.